podcast has bad words. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. We are here with Max Lugavir, author of The Genius Life, also Genius Foods. Uh, let's talk about the trio real quick, and then I want to get into, we do this little segment called More About Less, but you're working on a trio of books, right, or, or, or no? Oh, man. Are you gonna, is there going to be a third one here? I think, yeah, I, I'm in the development uh, phase of writing a cookbook. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Which is um that's an exclusive. I haven't mentioned that anywhere else. But yeah, Genius Foods was my first book. Um, the Genius Life, sort of like the sequel to it. Uh, although they they're they definitely stand on their own. Um, after writing Genius Foods, which to me is sort of a a nutritional care manual for the human brain, I realized that there's a lot more to the story than just nutrition. Yes. And so that's where the genius life came in, which is more of a 360 degree like lifestyle approach. I wanted to read a, a bit from it on page 151. You talk about antibiotics, and this is something that's near and dear to my heart. I'm gonna, mm. you're gonna be my therapist for a few minutes. I here. wish I would have known about antibiotics and their effects. Amen. Until I mean, I didn't realize you know what they did until 30 years old. It's like yeah. Well, so so in here you say we've all taken antibiotics at one point or another. That's universally true, true. I, universally true like I, I think that just about everyone has taken antibiotics even my seven-year-old daughter she had to have a surgery on her head and they like give her intravenous antibiotics mm -hmm. and we're really careful not to you know doctors prescribe antibiotics for everything now. yeah, yeah. Uh, last time I went to the doctor he prescribed me antibiotics. He 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 zapped a, a wart off my hand and now there's another one right here um, and after zapping, you know, it heals, and he's like, "Well, here, I'm going to prescribe you some antibiotics just in case it gets infected." And I'm like, "I'm not going to take them, man." <laughs> yeah. um, and, but and there's a reason I'm not going to take them as well. And and I, one of the problems is we we listen blindly to authority, right? Mm -hmm. And so they just pile these antibiotics on on, on onto us. And um, yeah, when a doctor gives you something, you're like, "Oh." He's a trained professional, so whatever he's recommending must be okay for me. Right, and yeah. and what I'm doing in a weird way is I am acquiescing my authority or my own sort of uh, autonomy in a way to to this person and letting him or her make decisions on my behalf, which I'm not against leaning on authorities and better understanding them and uh, their point of view and, and, and multiple authorities that you're digging through the literature as you do, Max. But uh, you go on to say, undeniably, antibiotics can, can and have saved lives, without a doubt. It may shock you, however. Uh, uh, what may shock you, however, is that 30% of antibiotics prescribed in the United States are thought to be completely unnecessary. Mm. And you have a, a link to a study there. I, I want to uh, explain something real quick. And by the way, this is just an excerpt from The Genius Life. I encourage you to check it out. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Now, uh, at age 20... Three, I think it was. I had like really bad nodular acne on my scalp. It turned out to be a soy allergy. Hmm. I didn't know this for many years. And I went to the doctor. They didn't say, hey, they didn't mention foods once, by the way. Um, they said, here, try this. Here, we'll put you on Accutane for a while. Oh that, that's God. awesome. Wow, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It, the, by the way, they have to check your blood like every two weeks to make sure your, your liver's not failing. Wow. Yeah. Why do you want to? And I, again, I, I'm taking responsibility now and saying, you know, at 23, I was an adult. I probably should have um, questioned it. it. Yeah, I, 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 not probably. I definitely should have questioned it. Yeah. And and then after the several rounds of Accutane, they're like, well, the, there's you're still getting some nodular acne. Here, we're going to give you an antibiotic that you're going to take every day in perpetuity mm -hmm. called Bactrin. Um, and so for 13 years, I took an antibiotic wow. every day. Wow. Now, earlier I told you I have, uh, I have over 100 ulcers in my small bowel. Um, and it prevents me from eating a lot of foods. Um, 
and and I'm working on healing that right now because it's you know what has happened is I've completely destroyed my gut microbiome. In your book, you go on to talk about how it is a nuclear bomb on our gut every time we take antibiotics. It's not selective, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are selective, and there are like you know antibiotics that do significantly more damage than that. Uh, and and again, you know, I think it's important. I, I don't I don't I don't like to throw shade at the medical profession, yeah. um, because certainly in in some instances these are important drugs, life saving drugs. Yeah. And my mom, you know, who inspires all all my work, you know, was very sick, and I wi- I wished um, that the medical uh, profession had more to offer her. But yeah. the reality she is, young, she was very young. Yeah, my mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know your mom passed from from cancer. My mom had a form of dementia for eight years called Lewy body dementia, which is what. It was the impetus for me to basically drop everything in my life and do a deep investigative dive into wow. the factors that might have contributed to her disease, what could be done to help her, what could be done to prevent it from happening to myself. But then ultimately, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and that took her life. And that was, you know, in, in, in both instances, what I experienced, um, similar to when you said nutrition was never brought up, you know, when, when you were being seen for your acne. I call this diagnose and adios. A physician would basically mm, look at my mom, run a battery of esoteric tests, uh, write a prescription for a new drug or titrate up the dose of a drug that she was already on and send us on our way. Not once was diet ever mentioned. Not once was lifestyle ever mentioned. Um, and you know the, the problem with these drugs is that uh, sometimes they work, but sometimes they don't work. And yeah. many of them have side effects. Uh, and so I think it's really important for you to become your own sort of sleuth uh, and, to, and to question whether or not you actually need these drugs. Now, guys like us, we're, we're pretty savvy. We're obviously interested in health. I mean, you yourself said that you, you lost a significant amount of weight. So I can, you know, I get the sense from you that you've been interested in this, in this topic for a while. Yeah. But the, the, rea- the reality is that many patients will actually just go and, and request antibiotics. So many people don't realize that antibiotics can be this double-edged sword. Well, and th- th- there needs to be some education. I think I agree with you. I- I'm not here to bag on the medical profession. I yeah. think they save lives. In fact, if I'm bagging on anyone, it's me for not starting to ask questions. But also, I will hold my doctor to some account to say, you know what? Maybe educate me on the fact because eventually I right. went to a doctor who after after we moved to Missoula, Montana, and, and he's like, wait, you've been taking this antibiotic for 13 years? And right. He started asking me questions like. Have you considered getting off of it? Do you understand what it's doing to your gut microbiome? He's like, we don't know a lot about the microbiome, but we know that it's important. Yeah. And f- for the first time, these questions, I actually hadn't even considered these questions. Yeah, yeah I mean, the microbiome is important. Um, it, you know, For those who are just hearing the term for the first time, I mean, it basically refers to the community of microorganisms that live in and on us. And what we know is that the colonic microbiome, so the, the, the universe, essentially, of microorganisms that include fungi, that include viruses, that include bacteria, uh, that live in the large intestine, basically inform our health in a major way. And we're just at the very tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding how this plays out for each individual person. Um, but when we take you know, broad-spectrum antibiotics, you're essentially, as you mentioned, dropping a nuclear bomb on, on, on that community. Uh, the repercussions of that, you know, not completely fully understood. Right. Um, but we do know that it, it dramatically changes the composition of the bacteria that live that live there, and that it takes some time. I believe about six months for the microorganisms to repopulate in a way that mirrors 
what that community was like prior to taking those antibiotics. If mm-hmm. ever. I mean, that's why the, if the, ever. the FMT thing, which I've done, actually, oh, wow. uh, with you know everything that's going on, I've done both top and bottom FMTs. Mm. So, like, it's... It, it, you start to get desperate when, when your health is, I mean, you, you learn this with, with your mother, you're trying to really go down the rabbit hole and you figure out, like there are some people who have destroyed their uh, microbiome and they're trying to repopulate the microbiota there. And, and so an FMT is just a, a fecal microbiome transplant. You're taking someone else's poop essentially and putting it in your body, trying to reseed the gut, so mm-hmm. to speak. And, and I find that these are things, while obviously we don't understand it, what we can start to see is more and more anecdotes that eventually becomes a data set, right? When, when enough people have been trying this and now there are obvious clinicians, there are obviously clinicians who are also doing this, especially in Canada and the UK where it's, it's less regulated. Um, and, and we're starting to see people change their lives by changing their gut. Yeah, I mean the big the big question is is whether or not the microbiome of a healthy person is uh, reflective of that person's health or causal, playing a causal role in that right. person's health. Mm. Um, but generally, given the current state of what we know about the microbiome, I mean there are a few salient, um, I think, uh, directions that we can move in in terms of how best to live and eat in a way that supports it. Yeah. as opposed to uh, fights it and can lead to problems. And so I think, you know, this over-reliance on antibiotics, I think that's a, that's that's major. I mean, to, to, to basically um, not take them if you don't need them. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, to expose ourselves to a, a broad array of soil-based bacteria, I think is important. That's why having a dog in your house is one of the best ways to actually increase uh, diversity of, of bacteria in the gut. Mm. Um Eating a diet that includes a, a broad array of colorful fruits and vegetables, I think that's super important. And, um, you know, that's something that the carnivore, you know, advocates are missing. That uh, yeah, I worry. I worry, like, the keto and the carnivore community may be missing out on keeping the, you know, the microbiota diverse. Yeah. Now, didn't you experience that when you went, like, straight carnivore? Like, it did yeah. something to your gut? Yeah, so I was, I was trying, and by the way, it really helped my inflammation. Right. Without a question, like, when I, I went to, essentially, all meat and organ meats, etc., uh, nose to da- tail diet, and I did it for health reasons. Like it, it made the most sense to me, and I tried to do it in an ethical way. And man, it re- radically reduced my inflammation. I mean, and and it changed my energy and everything else. But then I tried to go back to some sort of plants and stuff, and it was really difficult to because I, f- the 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 makeup of of the microorganisms and and probably also like the viruses and everything else that's going on there you know there's a, the yeah. virome as well it's, yeah. it's all it, it it um it requires food in order to continue to to live yeah yeah and certain certain foods contain um microbiota accessible carbohydrates or or max is the acronym uh, that are digested or that are fermented rather by bacteria, you know, early up in the digestive tract, whereas others are, are other types of fibers are are di- are fermented further down, like mm-hmm. by the colonic bacteria. And we're not really meant to have. You, you have bacteria lining the entirety of your digestive tract, but by and large, they're concentrated um, in the large intestine. But you can have what's called small uh, intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Right. Um, mm. You know, by allowing bacteria to to ferment food. Um, or these fibers rather too high up in the GI tract, and that can lead to problems too. So it's not one size fits all. And obviously, if you're if you're suffering from some kind of autoimmune condition or you have GI problems, uh, these fibers can actually be can be problematic for you. But um, if you have a healthy and resilient GI tract, uh, I think that that's where these 
you know, this plant matter can actually be very beneficial. Mm. So my wife had uh, candida. And uh, is that a bacteria? Is that what that is? Fungus. Yeast. It's yeah. a fungus. Okay. Yeah. So when you eat sugar, it's feeding, is it feeding all the bacteria or is it mainly feeding like the bad bacteria? I mean, it feeds bad bacteria and it feeds fungus. One of the best uh, ways okay. to reduce fungus in the gut is with apple cider, apple cider vinegar. Mm. Um, yeah, it's got, it's a, it's, it's actually great as a sort of cleansing. Interesting. Um, you just want to dilute it. Otherwise it'll destroy your tooth enamel. But what, what blows my mind about the gut microbiome is how serotonin, the majority of your serotonin is produced in the gut. Like that's where most of your emotions come from, right? Yeah. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. Well, actually that's, that's kind of a misconception. So okay. I mean, not, not, yeah, you do produce it. a lot of serotonin in your gut, but the serotonin that's made in your gut doesn't actually cross the blood brain barrier and oh, isn't, okay. yeah, isn't used in the brain the way that, uh, you know, de novo serotonin that's produced in the brain is used in the brain. Okay. Um, but the gut does have the ability to modulate your mental health in the fact that your gut is where, 70 to 80% of your body's immune system is basically poised to focus on because it's actually your gut is your largest interface with the environment. Mm. We tend to think of our skin as being the largest interface with, with your environment. But actually, if you were to take um, your elementary canal out you know, of your system and then spread it out on the ground, it would actually take up uh, the same area as a small studio apartment. So it's a huge interface with wow. the environment. And mm. yeah, and your ability to swallow a pathogen... Um, you know, prior to the industrial and agricultural revolution where we, you know, have the ability to sterilize our food in the way that we do today, you, there's tremendous risk associated with, you know, mm. eating the wrong food or eating, you know, an animal that maybe had an infection and then ultimately infecting you. So your immune system is focused on what's happening in your gut. And so for that reason, your gut in, a, in, in no small part basically controls the dial on inflammation in your body. Right. And that can affect your brain. Uh, okay. Because we know that what happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. I mean, it's not like Vegas, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. So um, inflammation is now being thought of, at least for a, a subset of the depressed population, um, as playing a causal role. In fact, a third of people with treatment-resistant depression uh, that don't respond well to drugs like SSRIs, which are typically prescribed to, to, to treat depression... Mm respond instead to anti-inflammatory drugs, mm. like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, like ibuprofen, for example. Wow. So imagine that, that reducing inflammation in the body can actually have a positive effect on symptoms of depression in people. Interesting. And it seems yeah. like the better way to do that is through food than through yeah, ibuprofen. Yeah, eating, eating a diet that basically minimizes chronic inflammation in the body, or that doesn't, that doesn't stoke the inflammatory fire in the body. Can we get specific? Like When you say eating a diet that is... is uh, low, a low inflammatory diet, yep. what, what are we talking about? Here? Yeah, so I mean... I'm pretty balanced. I advocate for the consumption of animal products and plant products. And uh, so for me, what it, what this diet really looks like, it's a whole foods diet that incorporates, um, you know, dark leafy greens primarily. There's research out of Rush University that shows us that people who consume a large bowl of dark leafy greens every day have brains that perform up to 11 years younger, wow. um, which is, you know, I mean, it's a correlational study. Sure. Um, so there are, you know, we can kind of pick that apart does it matter if they're like cooked or like should it should they be raw yeah do you worry about oxalates i don't actually worry about oxalates i think for people who are who are prone to kidney stones i think it's it's a it's a valid concern but i'm also not advocating for an excessive consumption of these kinds of foods either I yeah think you're it's not all talking about, about juicing uh right uh, or or you know, blending up you know uh, seven pounds of kale every day and consuming <laughs> yeah that. there was there's a very famous case study of a woman uh in china who discovered that cruciferous vegetables can help uh prevent diabetes mm. and so she ended up uh 
consuming about two kilos of bok choy, raw oh. bok choy every single day. And that's like one of the highest in oxalates. Yeah, and ended up growing a huge goiter and she mm-hmm. landed in a coma, went to the emergency room. So it's really about, it's about balance, you know? Yeah. It, the same way that, you know, um, no single unhealthy food is going to sway your body in the direction of health or disease. It's really, um, you want to make sure that your that your diet is varied. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely advocate for the consumption of dark leafy greens. I call it a big fatty salad. I eat a big fatty salad every day, mm. um, which is important. One of the best things that you could do for your health, I think, is to just eat a big salad every day. Super satiating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, full- so when you say dark leafy greens, you're talking like spinach, Spinach, kale, kale and arugula. Kale, arugula. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I think that kale, you know, we were talking earlier about how the, when, you know, any treatment you have to assess the benefits versus the risk. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are oxalates in kale and things like that. But um, there are also really important compounds called carotenoids in kale. Kale is one of the top sources of two compounds in particular called lutein and zeaxanthin, mm-hmm. which um, have actually been shown in uh, clinical trials at University of Georgia to boost the pro- the visual processing speed of the brains of young and healthy people, hmm. which is significant because we're already, you know, people in our age group are already thought to be at the peak of their cognitive prowess. Mm-hmm. But by adding in these two compounds, lutein and zeaxanthin, which are concentrated in kale, um, it can actually boost the way that your brain works. Interesting. Yeah. See, when I think of kale, it's like, I, I mean, baby kale I can do raw. But like regular kale, like I have to cook it because I yeah. just like chew it and chew it and chew it. Is it? I mean, is it better to eat it raw? Is it? Do you do you have an opinion on that? No, I think I think a, a mix. I think it's good to incorporate both. I really don't. I, to me, it doesn't matter if it's raw or yeah. or cooked. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it really it really doesn't matter. Um, the thing about cruciferous vegetables, though, when you consume raw cruciferous vegetables, you do get a compound that's created when you chew. Uh, the veggie is called sulforaphane. Which um, Paul Saladino is not a big, he's a carnivore, he's not a big fan of sulforaphane, but mm-hmm. I actually think it's an important compound. It's been shown to boost uh, the production of glutathione, which is the body's master detoxifier and antioxidant in the mm-hmm. brain, which okay. is important. So, mm-hmm. you know, associating uh, infl- neuroinflammation with depression, with worse memory function, with worse executive function, I think that uh, it stands to reason that sulforaphane, which is created again when you chew raw cruciferous vegetables, can actually support the way that your brain works mm-hmm. and awesome. your mental health. Yeah. Hmm. On the uh, the description of your book, you say something that, uh, about the human body was honed under conditions that no longer exist. Yeah. <laughs> now we. That's so interesting. I mean, obviously, we've we've created these environments that are comfortable, but that comfort actually leads to disease in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, your best health really is going to come at the end of your comfort zone. It's uh, it's important to. You know, to use an example, um, we live in a time defined at least in part by what I call chronic climate control. Yes, um, I'm a huge fan of the of the heating and air conditioning system in my in my house, and I use it all the time. But uh, the fact that we're so unwilling to venture, you know, even momentarily outside of our comfort zones, might be to the detriment of our health. Mm. Just last week, uh, Rich was talking about Rich Roll. He sleeps outside, mm. and so he sleeps in a tent you know his wife is in in the house in bed and he is outside in a tent because it's the it's 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 less comfortable in a way but it's also more natural and he said he, he finds that he gets much deeper sleep and, and better sleep sort of outside of the house in a way yeah i mean you do sleep better in cooler temperatures but i mean it's not just that when you're exposed to cooler temperatures um you actually there was a, a really cool study that found that when they took patients with type 2 diabetes and they made them sleep uh, for, I believe it was either, usually these studies are about two to four weeks in length. 
was a crossover study. They found that when they took these patients without changing their diets at all or their lifestyles at all, when they made them just simply inhabit a cooler temperature environment more frequently, they had, I believe it was a 20 to 25% increase in their insulin sensitivity, mm. which insulin sensitivity is like, uh, you know, any improvement in that is basically a reduction in disease and type two diabetes, which is defined by insulin resistance. Yeah. Um, and you can track that with like a glucose monitor. Yeah. Glucose monitor, measure insulin, um, things like that. You can look at your, uh, hemoglobin A1C. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically a reduction in blood, better, better glucose tolerance, lower, uh, levels of fasting insulin, things like that. Wow. And, and, um, speaking of Saladino, I heard him talking recently about, about this and even he is, you know, I don't think strawberries are going to give you type two diabetes. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, it seems like he's even someone like him is, is softening his stance on, on you know, plants to, to a great extent. Um, and that makes sense because while a really strict you diet that, that eliminates virtually all plants might be applicable to someone with chronic autoimmune issues, um, it it just doesn't seem practical, first off. But also, it doesn't, even to me, intuitively, it doesn't seem like the most healthful option. Yeah. I generally advocate for a diet that's, uh, you know, I don't advocate for grain consumption, for example, but even that I'm not dogmatic about. I think that if you're an athlete, um, you know, you can tolerate a, a certain amount of grains and be okay. Uh, I generally, I think that, uh, you know, and I'll concede that most of the grains present in the modern food supply are ultra processed, you know, mm -hmm. and made into any number of, of, um, you know, packaged convenience foods. Uh, but I don't think that like the whole one size dietary zealotry thing is like, is smart for anybody because yeah. at the end of the day, as I mentioned, you know, you can pick up any diet book in the, and I, I say this as somebody who's written diet books, right? Right. You can pick up any diet book in the bookstore and they'll work for you if you stick to it. It's about finding the diet that's going to work for you. Mm. You can get healthy as Rich Roll so, you know, eloquently demonstrates on a vegan diet, you can get healthy on a on a on a carnivore diet. I mean, certainly you look at Paul like there's no question that he's in great shape, right? Sure. Um, but I think that the optimal diet is yeah. one that incorporates uh, both plants and animal products. Yeah. I think that there's just no sort of way around that. And by the way, this is already that, that already mimics most people's diet anyway. Ninety, like I said, ninety-seven, yeah. ninety-eight percent of people eat plants and animals. The question yeah. is, what are the right ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think dietary fiber is super important. I think phytochemicals are important. You know, extra virgin olive oil, for example, great food, anti-inflammatory food, contains oleocanthal. Uh, which is as anti-inflammatory as low-dose ibuprofen. We've got dark leafy greens, which are amazing an amazing source of magnesium. You know, magnesium is at the center of the chlorophyll molecule. So anything green in the produce section that you find is usually going to be a good source of magnesium. 50% of the population doesn't consume adequate magnesium. Mm. Um, I don't know where in animal products to find magnesium. I get magnesium from nuts. I get it from dark leafy greens. I get it from dark chocolate. These are all, you know, magnesium is a crucially important uh, I mean, we can talk about magnesium. Magnesium is 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 required as a cofactor for hundreds of enzymatic processes in the, in the processes in the body. It's important for, you know, all of the body's DNA repair enzymes. So DNA damage is at the root cause of cancer. It's at the root cause of aging. You have the capacity to repair against DNA damage, but you require magnesium in order to do so. And so when there's a shortage of magnesium in the body, there's this, uh, it's called the triage theory of aging put forth by a, a longevity researcher named Bruce Ames. He says that when uh, micronutrients are in short supply in the body, basically they're funneled to processes that, su that support the organism's short-term survival mm. as opposed to long-term health. Yeah. So if you're not consuming adequate magnesium, you're basically handicapping your body's ability to um, 
repair DNA, which is going to, you know, this, this accumulation of damaged DNA, that's a long-term problem. That means that you're not going to be aging as well. You might develop a chronic disease later on, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or cancer or something like that. Mm. Um, and yeah, magnesium, where is it found? It's, as I mentioned, it's found in, in plant foods. Yeah. So what kind of, because there's like a million different kinds of magnesium, like which, yeah, which, which is like the one you want to get? Well, I generally get it from, I mean, I try to get it from food, but it's also one of the few supplements that I'll take. And I mm-hmm. take magnesium glycinate, which is, okay. yeah, it doesn't, magnesium, there are certain forms of magnesium that are more bioavailable than others. Uh, one that's common um, is magnesium citrate, but what can happen is it can it draws water into the gut and so it can cause um, diarrhea, basically. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but so mag- that's like the natural calm stuff that, that's yeah, if you drink magnesium too much of that. citrate. Yeah. Uh, okay. The glycinate, there's like a thorn mix of product. That, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically magnesium bound to glycine, which is an amino acid. You can eat it. You can you can take it on an empty stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I take a scoop of that every night. Uh, uh, yeah, and it also helps yeah. uh, for whatever reason with sleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm not exactly sure the, the mechanisms behind it. It does, yeah. You don't, I mean, you don't necessarily, my understanding is that you don't necessarily have to take it before sleep, but that a deficiency in magnesium can basically um, cause insomnia, mm-hmm. it can cause depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. things like that. So you yeah. just want to make sure that you're getting adequate magnesium in your diet. I had uh, magnesium glycinate recommended to me a couple of years ago. It's, it was a doctor. He's like, there's only one supplement that I would recommend everyone take, and that's magnesium glycinate because most people have a deficiency. But it's funny because all the vitamins I have, mm-hmm. it's come from someone, uh, someone's opinion who I really respect, whether they're a, a doctor or just really well-versed in health. Mm-hmm. And they're like, if there's one vitamin I would take, like it's <laughs> it's zinc. If there's one vitamin I would mm-hmm. take, it's vitamin D3 plus K2. If there's one vitamin I would take, it would be amino acids. I mean, it's, so like now I take... I don't know, probably eight different supplements. Based you take on- eight of the one vitamin you would take? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it, that, doesn't that say something about the American mindset, yeah. though, where it's like, here's the one pill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, well, what's happening? Your doctors are clickbaiting you? Well, well, no, no. Most of them would say you don't need supplements. Oh, okay. But if you were going to take one supplement, that's how that's how the conversation would start. But if yeah. you were going to take one supplement, here's what here's the one that I take. Yeah. So and yeah, yes, I'm taking the, the one supplement s- I take will surprise you. <laughs> Click here. Oh man, so quick, baby. <laughs> Tell yeah. me about supplements. So I mean, we might as well go down that road. Of course, we want to try to get our nutrition from food. food. Yeah. We, we want to be focused on both macro and micronutrients. Uh, we could talk about the difference between those, yeah. but then also let's talk about when we can't get it in our food, especially in our highly processed, we're in a, what I would call processed living yeah. in a way. And so there's, we have a problem with artificial foods, processed foods. I want to talk about that, but then also supplements. Yeah. I mean, foods become nutritionally depleted when they're just by virtue of the, of the nature of processing. And so that's why when you look at packaged processed foods that lie in the aisles of our supermarket shelves, Typically, they're fortified with synthetic vitamins because they've had the nutrition wrung out and they've got to be added back in. And also, you know, our governing bodies know that most Americans are actually 90% of Americans are deficient in at least one essential nutrient, uh, mineral or vitamin. Um, So most of us, and then you look at uh, statistics regarding obesity, we're on track by the year 2030. It's shocking that one in two people are going to be obese, not just overweight, but obese. Today... 66% 66% of people are either overweight or obese. Yeah. And yet, we're, most of the vast majority of us are deficient in at least one essential nutrient. So we're overfed and undernourished. And I think the problem for that is that we're marketed these foods that are ultra-processed and, mm. they're, you know, and they're largely uh, you know, d- devoid of, of any real uh, nutrition. Well, think back to just the, not that long ago that 
the 90s and even the 2000s, the, the sort of paragon of health was the athlete on the Wheaties box. Yeah. And you're like, Wheaties, that's wheat and corn, right? Like, like right. It, it's not, and it, it's fortified, I assume, with some sort of, you know, minerals and, and vitamins. But yeah. this is not, this is not a health food. No, it's not. That's why, I mean, that's why the whole notion that we should base our diets around grain products. Grains are energy rich, but they're nutrient poor. That's right. one of the reasons, you know, the fact that today the vast majority of calories that we consume come from just three plants, wheat, corn, and rice. That's one of the reasons why we're also nutritionally, mm. uh, you know, like we're, we're just ailing from a nutritional standpoint because we're basing around our diets. We're basing our diets around these, these, these three hyper cultivated crops that yes. are packed with energy and devoid of any real nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I, yeah, I advocate for just, you know, getting rid of those, um, you know, with the exception being that if you're, if you're an athlete, if you're a competitive athlete, you have a greater uh, capacity to dispose of glucose, which is essentially what those crops provide more than anything else. Right. Um, and then basing your diet around properly raised meat, fish, eggs, things like that with, with, with produce, which I think is important. Yeah. Um, but yeah, crucially, crucially important. When you're not getting adequate nutrition, you're handicapping your body in a major way. And I think, as you mentioned, micronutrients, macronutrients, we've got to sort of, I think, understand the difference, but to not overcomplicate things and to just eat real food, which yes. is going to provide you with both. Right. Right. Or, so you take uh, magnesium glycinate. What other supplements do you take on a regular basis? Well, I'm a fan of fish oil. I think from yeah. the standpoint of uh, brain health, I mean, there's been some evidence that people with a g- certain genetic risk factor for, for developing dementia and specifically Alzheimer's disease are very well suited to consume mm. fish regularly. Um, I take cod liver oil every day. Well, that's different. So cod okay. liver oil is a great source of vitamin A and vitamin D. Right. Um, but it's not it's not the best source of omega three fatty preformed omega three fatty acids. Right. Which I would get from like eating sardines as well. Yes. Right? So okay. sardines are sardines are great. Um, and I you know don't uh, use I don't take fish oil on days that I consume fatty fish. So fatty fish, okay. wild salmon, sardines, mackerel, herring. These are all great foods, mm-hmm. um, and they provide basically the most one of the most important structural building blocks of a healthy brain, which is DHA fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's why I think it's important to consume fish regularly. And then, uh, yeah, on days that I'm not consuming fish, I'll take a fish oil fish supplement. Oil, yeah. yeah. So that's it. Fish oil and magnesium. I take, I take magnesium really. fish oil. I take uh, vitamin D. Um, D3 on days that I'm not spending time in the sun. Yeah. I, for a long time, I've been a fan of astaxanthin, which is a, have you heard of astaxanthin? I haven't. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pigment, um, that's found exclusively in marine animals. So it gives, uh, lobster and shrimp, um, and wild salmon actually that, that characteristic red color, yeah. um, mm. that those, you know, um, foods are known for. And, uh, it's been actually shown to boost the uh, expression of a longevity pathway in the body by 90%. The pathway is called the FOXO3 pathway. Now I got to start buying astaxanthin. Yeah. Astaxanthin. Astaxanthin. (laughs) Astaxanthin is great. Um, It protects your cells from the inside out. It's got a really unique molecular structure. Um, And uh, it's also been shown to actually improve skin quality, like the the texture, quality, and and resilience of your skin to um, to exposure from the sun. Wow. So That's awesome. Yeah. Good to know. Let's talk about dirty air. Well, what's pollution doing to us? I and mean, we live in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. And and so I know that, I mean, obviously it's less than ideal. It's not like yeah. we're living in the, the rolling hills of Tennessee or something with mm. perfectly pristine air air around us. Now, there's there's two sort of problems. One is just the, the pollution in the air. Then there's also the sort of problem of 
indoor pollution. You know, mm. uh, some of the dirtiest air is actually in our homes, surprisingly, yeah. or even worse, if you go to a gym, like that is probably the, the, the filthiest air in the country is in a lot of gyms that have poor filtration systems. Mm. Everyone's just breathing out right next to you, you know, the, all the CO2 that's being exhaled, and then all the harsh chemicals that are being used to clean the equipment, and then the off-gassing, and y you've got all these problems with dirty air. What do we do about this? Yeah, it's a major problem. And actually, that, you know, stumbling upon, you know, many of the insights that you just described is, is one of the major reasons why I wrote my new book, The Genius Life, because, you know, nutrition we could talk about all day, and there's a lot of different op opinions on how we should or shouldn't be eating, but uh, air pollution, dirty air, is now being looked at as one of the major causal players in um, the etiology of conditions like Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and just more broadly, cognitive decline. Wow. Um, so one of the major types of air pollution, uh, outside air pollution that I talk about in the book, is uh, fine particulate matter. And what they found is that certain particles like magnetite, which are you know too small to see, but they're airborne, they can get into your lungs, they can enter circulation, they can pierce the blood-brain blood barrier, can actually accumulate in the brain and cause an inflammatory effect and, and, and also lead ultimately to the accumulation of, um, you know, proteins that we associate with Alzheimer's disease, like amyloid beta. Yeah. Uh, and these compounds are super common in the U.S. Um, you know, these, these particles, they're produced in the burning of garbage and, you know, any number of industrial processes they are released by car exhaust pipes. And it's actually been speculated or I shouldn't say speculated, but it's been it's been it's been posited that uh, one fifth of Alzheimer's cases might actually be owed to a chronic exposure to outdoor air pollution. Wow. So I think that if you're genetically at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, if you have a family history, you should definitely be cognizant of the type of of the quality of the air that you're that you're breathing in. The worst air I've ever experienced was in Missoula, Montana, in most August there because <sighs> it's fire season and yeah. it's. I mean, sometimes it looks like. When you see those really bad pictures of Beijing, it's worse than that. Worse, yeah, it, it's on when like you can see ten feet, twenty feet in front of you. It's crazy, mm -hmm. yeah. and it's everywhere like indoors. It smells like your house is on fire, yeah. which I mean can't possibly be good for us. So it's hard to really do anything about something like that. But in everyday life, there are things we can do to mitigate some of this. Yeah, I mean, you you know, I think it would be a little extreme to to pack up and move out of your home city, you know, because of fear of exposure to air pollution. But you can basically the effect that any toxic exposure has on your body, um, how that ultimately plays out in terms of your health is going to depend on many factors. But I think a major one is, uh, again, how nutritionally replete you are, how robust you are as an organism. And you can do things to also help your body's own detox processes. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, I sometimes hesitate to use the word detox because it's been sort of co-opted by the wellness industry and used to sell, you know, laxative teas and expensive supplements and things mm. like that. But right. your body has, you know, wonderful organs that, that work to help detoxify your system. Mm. Yeah. Um, we just need to give them the appropriate uh, compounds, ingredients, precursor molecules to do that. And also to engage in activities that help our bodies detox because, um, because, you know, I think today, uh, you know, going back to like chronic climate control, for example, just using that as, as an example, um, very few of us actually sweat, you know, mm -hmm. as much as our ancestors may have. So by sitting in a sauna, you're actually, you know, your skin is a detox organ. You're getting rid of certain heavy metals that accumulate and compounds like flame retardants and, and phthalates and parabens and things like that. Um, ensuring that your diet has a, a you know good quantity of antioxidants fish oil things like that they've done a number of these studies actually in china 
the air pollution in China is so bad that it's been um, it's been said that uh, stricter regulation can actually lead to an additional year of education for the entire population because of the effect that that air pollution is having on the the collective cognitive abilities of of, wow. of people in China. Yeah, mm. like the air pollution is that bad. Um, especially in the major cities. Uh, but they've because it's such a major problem there, it's where a lot of this research is being done, where they're showing that supplementary vitamin C, vitamin E, these are these are just, you know, essential antioxidants, um, can actually help mitigate some of the problems associated with um being exposed to, to air pollution. Uh they've also shown in clinical trials that um a B complex can reduce some of the harm that comes to your cardiovascular system from being exposed to fine particulate matter. Mm. Um, and fish oil too. Fish oil, sulforaphane. Uh, so there's like, you know, there's a bunch of these studies. Uh, admittedly, a lot of them are small. Um, but I think that they're a good start. And what they do is they, they kind of show us that uh, eating a healthy diet, you know, as, as I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, it sounds like kind of trivial advice today, but... Um, it's really going to help protect you in many ways against a lot of these kinds of problems, like in a way that's really multifaceted. Like going back to to drugs like antibiotics and nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories, when a drug is developed by you know the pharmaceutical industry, they're designed to basically tink, tweak like one chemical or work on one individual pathway in the body, um, and that's why oftentimes these drugs are released, often to you know. To, to the discovery of many unintended consequences down the line that haven't right. that you know don't really show their heads uh, during the initial trials, but by sitting in a sauna, for example, or by you know being more active or getting more exercise or changing your diet and and cutting out the processed foods and eating a you know a diet that's 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 more built around nutrient density, you're strengthening the entirety of the system. Yes. That's the beautiful thing about all of these recommendations. We had a question from Sarah Ryan. We talked earlier about inflammation, but um, her question is about the immune system. I thought it would tie in well with that. Yeah. How can we improve our immune systems to fight viruses? Now, this is even, you know, people are obviously asking this question now, or at least should be, because of what's going on with COVID. My whole family had COVID. Um, so uh, wow. I think we may have got it from our daughter, who probably got it from school before everything shut. So this is like three, four months ago mm. at this point, and uh, back in March. And um, because we're a relatively healthy family, you know, I had a fever for about a week or so, about eight days, I think. But it was a low-grade fever. I wasn't, like, bedridden or anything did like that. Did you have any of the lung stuff? Like, hard, hard to breathe or anything? My, my wife did. So, mm. so Bex um, had some fatigue. She also lost her sense of smell for a day. Mm. Um, and then Ella, our seven-year-old, she coughed, like, three times, and that was it for her. She was done with it. <laughs> she coughed three times in your face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what she tends to do. Usually if, when I'm doing something nice, like reading to her, she'll <laughs> sneeze in my mouth. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Um, we went. We were a relatively healthy family. I mean, my wife's the paragon of health, and and so uh, we got through it easily. But we have great diets and and, and habits and sleep, etc. But what can we do to strengthen our immune systems? And and the thing is, we can strengthen our immune system relatively quickly. Within a couple months, we can make some pretty dramatic changes in our life that will improve our immune system. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think vitamin D is a major player there. I think you know. Getting a, a handle on your vitamin D status, I recommend uh, making sure that it's in a range of 40 to 60 nanograms per um, milliliter. Uh, per milliliter. Um, 
Another interesting thing about magnesium that I didn't know before doing uh, research for the Genius Life is that um, the vitamin, the form of vitamin D that your skin creates uh, when it's exposed to the UVB rays from the sun needs to be then activated in the liver and the kidneys. And the enzymes that basically convert the vitamin D that your skin creates into its active hormone form in the body um, both require magnesium. So if you're one of the, you know, one in two people who are not consuming adequate magnesium in your diet, you're basically handicapping your body's ability to produce vitamin D. Mm. So you could potentially be burning in the sun uh, or getting, you know, excess sun exposure, which is leading ultimately to DNA damage, not creating the vitamin D that you're intending to create. Right. Um, and also handicapping your body's ability to repair from that DNA damage because you're not consuming adequate magnesium. So mm. uh, can't underscore the, the value of, mag of, you know, magnesium enough. What's hurting our immune systems right now? Uh, I mean, I think chronic stress. We know that chronically elevated cortisol is not good for the immune system. It leaves us prone to infections um, and, and, you know, any number of diseases. But, uh, you know, ironically, people have been so stressed out about um, COVID-19. They're staying inside, not getting vitamin D from the sun Staying inside, well. not getting vitamin D. Also, you know, eating, you know, eating more probably than usual of these packaged convenience foods right. mm. um, can be a big problem, can hurt, you know, can hurt the way yeah. that the immune system functions. I see so many people stocking up on grains as well. Oh I remember that the first week I went to, uh, I went to Erwan. Be actually, I, I went to, uh, what was it, Sprouts and then Whole Foods. They were sold out of everything. So I go to Erwan, and even Erwan is like sold out of the really expensive you know, pasta. Not that I would buy it. I'm mm. walking through the aisles. And even like the pasta aisle is empty and the rice is all gone. And yeah, I saw a guy at Trader Joe's with just like an armful of cookies. And I was like, that's what you're going to hoard. That's what, okay, that's what you're going to live off of for the next couple of weeks. Maybe he's wiping his butt with him because yeah. they're out of toilet paper. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, man. So, so Max, you mentioned uh, cortisol. So uh, when the Russian bathhouse is open, like Josh in West Hollywood, like we'll go down there and do the saunas and the cold plunge. And it's, it's great. And, like totally yeah, just euphoric in a way. Um, I know that that helps your immune system. But doesn't the cold plunge, doesn't that release cortisol? Or am I wrong about that? Um, no, you're right. I mean, these 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 acutely stressful um, activities can certainly increase cortisol. Mm -hmm. You know, an extended workout, for example, I, I believe after about an hour, you'll see cortisol levels start to rise. Okay. Cortisol is not bad. I mean, it's like just one example of all these aspects of our biology and health that are that can function like double-edged swords when they're taken out of the original context in which they were designed to operate mm. um, and have and now are able to become dysfunctional. Okay. Um, and so chronically elevated cortisol, which usually for most people is a response of psych chronic psychological stress, that I think is the problem. But the acute rise in cortisol that you'll see from sitting in a, in a you know, cold plunge or sitting in the sauna, that can be beneficial. And you'll often see that with um, indicators of inflammation, for example. So like if you sit, if you use a sauna for an hour um, and you were to do blood work right after, you might actually see a momentary increase in blood markers of inflammation. And we, you know, we know that generally speaking, we want to keep inflammation low, right? right? So what happens is you'll see an increase, but then you'll see a plunge. You'll see an uh, increase in your blood pressure during exercise or while sitting in a sauna, but then you'll see a plunge. And your the, the rationale is that it'll actually positively affect your baseline levels of all of these markers, inflammation, blood pressure, and things like that. I see. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, like anything else, cortisol, it's not the enemy when it's 
appropriately used, it's good yeah. for you. But yeah, if you just if you have cortisol in your bloodstream all the time, it's going to have some negative effects. Yeah, another great way to to reduce chronic uh, levels of cortisol, which again um, can negatively affect your immune system, is to just make sure that you're getting good, adequate, bright sunlight every single morning. Okay. Um, there, I believe there was a study. It was a really cool study, and uh, I want to say that it would, they saw about a, a ten to twenty percent drop. Um, in baseline cortisol levels from just exposing yourself to the sun in the morning. Your eyes. wife does that every morning. Like she goes out in the hammock and reads because she heard sunlight in the morning was good. I'm going to start joining her on it that. It is good. It's yeah. super important. And it's like for a man, it's like you want to get it on your stomach, on your chest and stuff. Like it's not just like... like with, not just your arms. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, with your shirt off, you're going to get more benefits from the sunlight than just, yeah, with, with your arms exposed. Yeah, the sun is medicine. Um, man, I feel bad for my neighbors now. <laughs> <laughs> it's free medicine here in, in Southern California, especially. We, growing up in Dayton, Ohio, it's one of the cloudiest places you could be most of the year. And then we moved to Missoula, Montana, which might be the cloudiest place in North America. Um, and and so you you have a day of sunlight, you like bask in it, right? You, you, we see these people in Nordic countries where like there's one day of sun, all of a sudden everyone's out on the lawn. And But here it's like it's freely available and it feels like almost we... we we take it for granted because it's it's right here. Yeah. But it is medicine. Yeah, but that's that's why people with lighter complexion like us, you know, yeah. with our ancestry in Northern Europe, uh-huh. we're so efficient at creating vitamin D right. um, in our skin, which again is crucially important for a myriad of aspects. I mean, there's li- there are literally vitamin D receptors in every organ in your body. So vitamin D is crucially important for the functioning of every single organ in your body. But if you have darker complexion, so yeah. if you're a black person, for example, yeah. um, you, I mean, melanin is nature's sunscreen. Right. So, and there are benefits associated with that. You're going to be less prone to sun damage. You're going to age better than, than us, right? Mm-hmm. But you actually need to really focus on getting your vitamin D, spending more time in the sun, or taking a vitamin D supplement. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is one of the reasons why you see people of color, unfortunately, that uh, have higher risk for, well, any number of chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. speaking specifically of COVID-19, uh, you know, people see, people um, seem to be at higher risk of morbidity and mortality. And I think the vitamin D factor here is an important one. Agreed. Yeah, mm-hmm. my, my brother's, uh, he's black. And he... Growing up, we would always go to the pool together, go to the YMCA, and, uh, mm-hmm. because my mom, my mom's white, obviously, and uh, uh, he'd see us putting on sunscreen, and he would like try to put on sunscreen as well. <laughs> you know, we're like ten years old, and he's eleven, and like I'm, I'm, you're, I don't know, like it makes sense to me. I'm putting it on, why doesn't he put it on right. or whatever? Yeah. Uh, but no, he already had built in. He's fairly dark complected as well. Um, and he already had this sort of built-in sunscreen. And now I'm talking to him. He's still back in Ohio and about making sure he's supplementing with vitamin D. And I'm like sending him these supplements and stuff because, mm-hmm. in, I mean, right now there's, there's, there's adequate sun. But he works in a factory. He's like yeah. indoors most of, most of the time. He's not getting sunlight. And so if you're not getting sunlight, which is probably the best thing to do, especially for him, he has to get way more than I would. Uh, supplementing with vitamin D because yeah. Dayton, Ohio is a cloudy place. But yeah. e- even somewhere like here, most of us, what is the stat? I, you, you probably know the stats better than I do. Um, 90, we spend 93% percent of, our of our time, time indoors. indoors. Yeah. 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 Wow. yeah. So e- even though we have access to the sun, we're, we're in a room without any windows right now, right? Yeah. Now, which is important for you know a podcasting setup. But if I'm spending all day in here, which a lot of people do that sort of thing, man, am I deficient. Yeah. Mm. I mean, to me, it's just so abundantly clear. It's like kind of seeing the matrix. You know, it's so clear why so many of us feel so crappy all the time and why so many of us are so sick. It's because, you know, just 
the wor- the modern world has become like the Hunger Games, mm. and we have become the unwitting combatants, thrust into battle and defenseless to boot. Yes. Um, and so whether it's the fact that 90, 93% of our time is spent indoors, when we are, when we do finally get outdoors, we're breathing, you know, this, uh, this excessive amount of particles in the air, fine particulate matter, and then every meal is composed primarily of these ultra-processed foods, which are leaving us overfed and undernourished, um, chronic stress, lack of good quality sleep, uh, overly sedentary lifestyles. It's just really, the, the, the cards are stacked against us, but I think just by making a few simple tweaks in your, in your diet and your lifestyle, I think that you can be protected in a, in a significant way against what it seems that the rest of the world, you know, the, the vast majority of the population is, is facing. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ever-expanding waistlines, you know, ill health, poor mental health, which is, which is major. Um, and these are all connected. Our brains and our bodies aren't standing in separate corners of the room. So quite often the mental health correlates with the waistline yeah. and, and, and vice versa. Yeah, 100%. Um, there's, a, there's a very, you know, frequently cited study that found that, you know, as our waistlines increase and expand, our brain, our total brain volume actually shrinks. Oh wow! So there is this oh. inverse relationship between the size of our waists and uh, and the size of our brains. Oh my gosh! And when it comes to the brain, you know, unfortunately, size matters. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, we've got uh, some surprise questions. Let's try to get through as many of these as we can. All right, Mary writes in: How can minimalist practices help improve my health? I mean, I really think Max, that's what you're talking about. When Ryan and I talk about minimalism, we talk about the deliber- a deliberate use of the resources we have. So for us, it often starts with the stuff. When you, the average American household has 300,000 items in it. I'm not against stuff. I'm against excess stuff that gets in the way of living a more meaningful life, right? Yeah. And and it seems to me that your pursuit is very similar to that is we are bombarded with excess, whether it's uh, excessive food or excessive calories or excessive stress. And it's not about removing all of those down. It's and just like minimalism isn't about us becoming ascetics or monks or Spartans. It's about being more deliberate with the resources that we have. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a lot of people complain that uh, eating healthy is more expensive or it can be more expensive. And I argue that with a little planning, it's actually not. And one of the um, key ways to make, you know, reaching for higher quality food more cost uh, efficient for you is to cut out the the excess, you know, cut out the stuff that you don't need, yeah. whether it's brand name products or fancy sparkling beverages or sodas or fruit juices or things like that. Cut that out and then you'll be able to have a higher reserve for um, for actual food. Man, yeah. that's really happened. Ryan and I were talking about this, I think with Rich last week. Uh, during the, the whole quarantine, the price of my groceries has gone up, but that's because I'm not eating out as frequently. And that's the thing about eating out. You don't, they surprise you. It's like, what's behind door number two? You don't know what's really in that food. Right. And there's almost always, if you're eating out, refined oils, which I know you're not a fan of. Yeah, I'm not a fan of uh, oils like corn oil, soybean oil, canola oil, things like that. Mm. And why is that? Um, well, because for the most part, those oils, they're highly processed. Um, they under all of them, all vegetable oils undergo a process in the production chain called deodorization. Okay. So this is just one of the problems with them. There's a, there's a few problems with them. But one of the problems is that they all undergo a process called deodorization. And what that is, is that's basically the food industry's equivalent of the witness protection program where these oils, whether it's from <laughs> corn or soy or the rapeseed, which is what canola, you know, originates from. If we were to call it the rapeseed oil, I don't think we would consume it as much. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) probably not. When we were, I think in Australia, UK, I saw that ingredient, rapeseed oil. I'm like, I don't want to eat this. (laughs) Yeah. 
It sounds suspect. <laughs> um, but but this this process this deodorization process is the reason why. No matter where the oil comes from, you can use it in a salad dressing. You could use it in a granola bar. You can use it to coat uh, and, and roast dried nuts in or mm. you know fruits and things like that. Um, it basically makes them odorless and tasteless. And the problem is mm. that that process creates a small but significant amount of trans fats in all of these oils. And mm. we now know that there really is no safe level of man-made trans fat consumption. So people might be familiar with partially hydrogenated oils, mm -hmm. uh, which is when you took a, a grain and seed oil and you made it act more like a saturated fat at room temperature, so solid at room temperature, which is very good for baking, but not so good for our vasculature. Mm -hmm. Causes inflammation in our, in our blood vessels, um, can damage uh, brain tissue, and actually is the consumption of trans fats is, has actually recently been associated with increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, and yeah. so all of these oils, whether it's canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, expeller pressed, organic, uh, you know, it really doesn't matter. They all contain a, a significant amount of these fats. And today we're consuming a ton of these oils. Right. Um, they're the predominant oils used in any restaurant that you go to. Whenever right. you get food that's been even health. I mean, I saw yeah. what, what the magazine or magazine re recently talked about. Um, heart healthy canola oil. And oh, it's like, yeah. are, are you, that, that's been debunked. Why are you still? You know, yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, and these oils, I mean, generally when we, they're sold as cooking oils because they have a high smoke point. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And smoke point actually doesn't really have a relationship with the temperature at which an oil becomes rancid and goes bad and begins to oxidize. And a damaged oil damages you. So the, the major, one of the major problems, aside from the deodorization process, is that these oils are very damage prone. They're primarily what are called polyunsaturated fats, which are the least chemically stable. So in the hierarchy, you've got saturated fats, which are the most chemically stable, um, which means that they're less prone to oxidation, rancidity. Then you've got monounsaturated fats. Polyunsaturated fats are highly vulnerable. They're very delicate. And when you cook with them, they're just very quick to go bad. And bad oils, they promote inflammation. Yeah, they get they get tugged around um, on on proteins in your body called lipoproteins, uh, where they can end up in your brain. They could end up in your arteries. They can end up basically, yeah. I mean, you're using these these pro-inflammatory oils that then get integrated into your tissue. Mm. So, what's the best cooking oil? Vir uh, extra virgin olive oil, and you yeah. got to cook it at a lower temperature. Yeah, low to medium heat. So, the thing okay. about extra virgin olive oil that people don't don't understand: extra virgin olive oil has all these incredible health benefits due to the um, the phytochemicals that are in it, like oleocanthal. I talked about that. Okay. Um, when you cook with extra virgin olive oil, at worst, what you're going to do is you're going to neutralize the health benefits of those oils. What you're not going to do is mutate the fats in those oils and turn it into a rancid carcinogen, yeah, right. which is what happens when you cook with corn oil or soybean oil or any of those fats. Dude, I've got this Thai recipe that I make, and I use peanut oil. And like my eczema or psoriasis, I haven't had a diagnosis. I don't know what it is, but like it gets so bad. Mm -hmm. I think it's because of the peanut oil. I mean, is that? Yeah, I mean, peanut oil is very high in, in polyunsaturated fats. Okay. Uh, it's also so good, though. Very high, and <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's a, there's a subtle but I think important difference. So when you take um, like sun, not sunflower seed oil, like sesame seed oil, mm. that's like a finishing culinary oil that is revered for its flavor, right? Yes. That's a seed oil, obviously, because it comes from the, the sesame seed, but it doesn't go through the same uh, bleaching process that canola oil, corn oil, and all these cooking oils undergo. So mm -hmm. actually, a little bit of sesame seed oil, sesame seed oil is made simply by squeezing sesame seeds. Right. Okay. That's how you make it. It doesn't go through you know, the dozen industrial steps that uh, that these cooking oils undergo. And so 
sesame seed oil f- as an example, and I'm I'm guessing, although I don't know for sure, but peanut oil is, is similar. Yeah. It still contains actually many of the antioxidants that are mm. found within its whole food form that can actually, you know, protect to some degree these oils. Okay. Um, so for like, if you're, if you have a recipe and the salad requires a splash of sesame seed oil, I say go for it. But the best thing that you, one of the best things that you could do for your health is to avoid consuming oils like canola, corn, soybean, grapeseed oil. Mm. It's another thing that many people have, are, you know, have been misled about. Grapeseed oil is another oil that's very, very, uh, unhealthy. It's by and large polyunsaturated fat. So it's very, uh, damage prone. You know, you leave it sitting in a, pla- I, the, I've seen people literally store these oils in plastic bottles by their stove. Mm. So it's literally chronically exposed to the warm environment of the kitchen in plastic, you know, so it's able to basically like leach, you know, some of these plastic compounds. Sure. Um, Yeah, no bueno, really unhealthy. Yeah. We make this uh, this garlic sauce. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's basically grapeseed oil and raw garlic. And like maybe a little bit of like lemon juice or something. Yeah, I would use was it like tum. Is that uh, I think like so. The yeah. Lebanese dish. Yes, yeah, yes. I lo- that's an amazing. Most of the time when you see that in restaurants, so I, I love Lebanese food. Mm. Um, but tum is usually if you buy it at restaurants, it's made using the cheapest oil that Canola these restaurants can something. find. Yeah, yeah, or worse, soybean oil. Um, a great oil to use instead is avocado oil. So avocado oh, oil is also chemically stable, uh, super healthy. High smoke point too. High, very high smoke point doesn't have the same strong taste that extra virgin olive oil is known for yeah. so it makes it a great candidate for i will it. totally replace that uh the grapeseed oil with the avocado oil um before we move on to the next question uh so how can minimalist minimalism help your diet when i think about uh, i was vegan for a year like josh and i had this bet and i thought oh being a vegan is healthy mm-hmm. but i wasn't intentional with it so i quickly found out that oreos are vegan most Pillsbury products are vegan. There were these vegan restaurants that started popping up and I'm like, oh, I'm eating vegan and it's healthy. But uh, I actually started, my health started to decline because I was just eating a bunch of processed foods essentially. That's the difference between being simplistic and simple, right? Yes. You can simplify something or you can oversimplify something. And and by saying be vegan, that's healthy. Well, that that's oversimplified, right? Yeah. But you can simplify your diet, meaning being more more intentional. It's not always easier to be simple. In fact, being intentional is often more difficult than just grabbing the processed, packaged food from the aisle. That that's really easy for me to grab, walk down the middle of the grocery store, grab whatever I can from those middle shelves, and oh look, it says health food right here. It must be healthy. Yeah. Open the wrapper and eat the thing. But of course, there are long term consequences yeah. for that. Marcy has a question for us, Ryan. How can I use minimalism to address the challenges of a chronic illness? Well, uh, let's define what chronic illness is here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that you, well, I mean, something that you deal with chronically, but I'm assuming that what she means is a non, one of these non-communicable diseases uh, that's not necessarily genetic, but is the confluence or the, or the, you know, the result of the interplay between our genes and our environment. Mm-hmm. So heart disease, cancer, dementia, uh, autoimmunity, perhaps, um, these are all the these are the kinds of conditions that really seem to be uh, reaching epidemic proportion today. Yeah. Um, and they're not uh, inevitable aspects of living, but they seem to be the result of the fact that you know many of us are not living super healthily. Yeah. And, and, and it seems to me that many of these chronic illnesses didn't exist or were the very rare exception to our ancestors, especially before you know, agriculture sort of took over. What was the did you read Sapiens? Yeah. Yeah. So when he talks about how um, we didn't domesticate, we, we domesticated we us. Domesticated us. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that that book. Um, 
Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you know, I don't pretend to have the answers for, you know, what causes cancer for, you know, each cancer for each person. That's sure. something that nobody knows. Right. Um, and I don't know what was the what was the cause of my mom's ill health, you know, from her dementia to the pancreatic cancer that she developed. Um, all I have are hypotheses, and uh, and science is continually evolving. It's not owned by academia right. or people with PhDs. You know, it's a it's simply a method of asking questions and seeking answers. And I think that um, our diets and our lifestyles have just become defunct and out of whack with the needs of of our body. You know, we evolved in a world that was much different than the world um, that we have inherited today, and it's leading to ill health, malaise, and disease. Um, so, you know, I think by by doing the best that you can, by like t- by not obsessing over the details, by simplifying things, uh, to really look at your life, take an inventory, and look at the low hanging fruits, and to see where you can make these incremental improvements, knowing that it's not about perfection, it's about progress. You know, continually every day looking for areas where you can you know make these subtle improvements. Over the long term, I think you're going to have a big improvement. Um, on your long-term health, but they also thankfully improve the way that we feel in the here and now. I mean, it's pretty amazing that by investing in our long-term selves, we can actually feel better in the here and now. Yeah, and I think that, if anything, is going to serve as powerful validation that you're on the on the right path. I, you know, I think it's safe to say, like, no matter what chronic illness one may have, the the more they can focus on having a good diet, the more they can focus on getting exercise, getting out in the sun. They're going to be able to deal with that chronic. Even it still may be really horrible, but they're going to deal with it better than if they just yeah lived off of Twinkies and never went outside or exercised. Yeah, and it's also important to know that you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm. So Amen. often these conditions begin years, if not decades, before the presentation of symptoms. So one of the mm. most shocking things that I discovered that really um, was for me a turning point and is what inspired me to to do this work and to write Genius Foods and to write The Genius Life uh, was the was the was the finding that deme- that dementia often begins in the brain 30 to 40 years before the presentation of symptoms wow so for me what? when I yeah yeah this oh is not gosh. an old person's condition um, and but the same thing is true for you know, cardiovascular disease. If you have a heart attack, the conditions that led to you having that heart attack didn't begin the night before you showed up to your cardio, to your yeah. cardiologist's office, right. you know, or the emergency room. Um, so we really have to be mindful of these things today. There's this great JFK quote, and you know, uh, I wasn't around when 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 he was, but it's a quote that I think is so timeless and it's so true that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. Mm. That's such an important, um, I think, way to think about your health. That you know, once you have one of these chronic diseases that is set in, that's usually a decades-long disease process already set into motion. Mm. And we go to our doctor's offices scared and confused, and we expect them to have a pill that's going to that's gonna cure us of whatever it is that's ailing us, but they seldom, seldom do. Right. And I've been in the belly of the beast with my mom, and I, can, I will tell you that there really is no great drug for dementia. You know, I mean, one of the best drugs actually for dementia isn't a drug at all. It's called exercise. Mm. Um, the medicine had nothing to offer my mom for her cancer, and I don't know why she developed cancer. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the value of prevention really can't be understated. Let's yeah. let's finish overstated, with, I should say. Right, right. Let's finish with we're talking about exercise a little bit. We got a question from Nicole. I thought this would be a great way to wrap it up, Ryan. How can you increase motivation in your life? What are some health exor- health exercises 
that you would recommend for someone who does not have access to gym equipment and does not want to spend money on excess items? Now, Max, there's an interesting word here. Excess items doesn't mean no items, right? Mm-hmm. And we, I think we've already covered that right now. Like at home, I have, I have a stationary bike. So does Ryan. I'm not saying you need to also get one of those. But for me, I've determined that that's not excess to me. I ride that three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. I also have a set of you know weights like the power blocks. And I was using those this morning. So that's not excess for me. I use them. I have a pull-up bar. I do push-ups. I could get by without those things, but it's not optimal for me. So I, I, I want to be clear that I don't think it's inherently wrong for you to own some sort of home gym equipment or especially now a lot of people don't have access to a gym obviously because they've all been closed for many months and I've seen some people use that as an excuse to I'm going to stop working out until my gym opens up again that's yeah that's what it's funny I've actually worked out more since my gym closed (laughs) yeah because I got on like this 30 day Hmm. I found it on YouTube and it's just pretty much like a pull-up bar some resistance bands is is all you need what yeah. Do you, what do you do, Max? Yeah, you don't need a lot. Um, and I've been sharing a lot of my home workouts that I do, you know, during this time on my Instagram. But one of the, I mean, I think this, so. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I bought a jump rope for mm. the first time. <laughs> I'm 38 years old. I've never in my life jumped. I thought he was like 24. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> I um. Yeah. I like this is like a totally new thing for me. But I've been having a blast learning how to jump rope. And now That's I'm great. like actually I've gotten really good at it. Yeah. And it's an amazing form of exercise. Uh-huh. It's not only so good for your but for your cardiovascular system, for your lymphatic system, it burns a tremendous amount of calories. Yeah. It's amazing for your brain. I mean, the fact that I'm now like, you know, rewiring, you know, in air quotes, my brain to know how to freaking do this new thing. Um, well, now, let me ask you this. I've always wondered, I saw a guy jump roping in a parking lot the other day. And my, my first thought, and maybe me being cynical, was like, why don't you just jump? Why do you need the rope? To, maybe I'm being overly <laughs> well, minimalist. Well, dude, the, the, pro, the 30-day program, there is one there's like certain uh, days where the, you, you're supposed to jump rope, but the trainer is like, if you don't have a jump rope, just sit there and imagine. Okay. And that's a, I actually do that. I just I have oh, an imaginary awesome. jump rope. And the, I'll be like, Ryan, check it out. I'll do like crosses. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> you know, you know me, I would trip on it. I fell off my Peloton a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. like, I have no balance at all. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, back to the, the, to the jump rope. Um, how long do you do that for? I've been doing it for, well, at first I was only able to do it for like, you know, five to 10 second increments. And now I'm able to do it for like bursts of a minute. Okay. And, and it's really hard to do. I bet. Um, and I can't do any of those tricks. Like, you know, I'm literally just like hopping up and down. But um, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm getting better at it. I'm able to kind of like, you know, it's more automatic for me. And, yeah. um, and it's just, yeah, it's an incredible... Again, it's amazing for your brain. It burns a huge amount of calories, more so than, you know, per time interval, more than running, more than biking, more than swimming. It's an incredibly, uh, you know, efficient way of working out. Awesome. Um, So that's a great one. You could do, you know, there's tons of push-up variations that you can do. I have a a counter in my kitchen that, you know, forms a right angle. I've been doing dips on that. I've been Mm. doing air squats. I also recently have uh, taken a boxing, which I think is super fun. Mm. Always challenging myself, you know, like learning new skills I think is super important. Um, So I think the lesson to learn here is if you want to get by with no equipment whatsoever, you can absolutely have a phenomenal workout every day. You can do pull-ups. Um, on, you know, whether it's a monkey bar across the street at a park or I have a pull-up bar, you know, perfect pull-up bar is like 20, 30 bucks, right? And I use it every single day. In fact, 
anytime I go to the bathroom, I just make sure I do six pull-ups, like because it's right there where our bathroom door Smart. is. And as I come back out, so on your average day, even if I don't work out, I've done sixty or seventy pull-ups that day, just be just for the sheer fact that it's become a habit, right? And so you can do push-ups, pull-ups, regular squats without without weights. Um, I have a weight vest. So I'll, I'll use that for pull-ups, push-ups, and squats as well. Yeah, those are cool lunges. You can do mountain climbers. You can do, you know, there's a, a huge number of variations of the plank that you can do. Um, generally, what you want, you want to do is you want to focus on compound movements, so you're, which are going to allow you to get the most bang for your buck. Yes. Right. Um, so if you, have, if you happen to have uh, a weight laying around, you know, do less of the bicep curls and instead, you know, maybe do bent over rows if you can mm-hmm. or lunges or... Um, even air squats. I mean, working your lower body, I think, is crucially important just because you have a huge amount of muscle mass down there. Right. right. Um, well, speak for yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, not even not even me personally, but just relatively, you know, like our legs are just, they're the largest, they make mm-hmm. up the largest muscle group in our body, like the lower body. Yeah. And uh, there actually is, just to bring it back to the brain, which is, of course, you know, my passion, there's a really good, um, a strong correlation that has been uh, shown that you know having stronger legs actually is great for brain health. Like mm. there seems to be a correlation between a higher performing brain and strong legs. Yeah, mm. Max, I appreciate you, brother. I want to encourage folks to check out the Genius Life, also Amen. your podcast of the same name. Yeah. Right? So uh, we'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. Is there anywhere else we should send folks? Yeah, I'm super active on Instagram, so it's at Max Lugavere, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E, and um, yeah podcast i want to have you guys on so if yeah you're we'll willing, willing sure. to indulge me yeah i would love to have yeah. you on open we'll make the drive all the way to the ocean to yeah santa monica yeah, we'll make it happen <laughs> awesome brother thank you so much thank you I'm so really much grateful for, for you thanks for having me you're awesome all right y'all love people use things thank you patrons couldn't do it without you the minimalists <laughs>